The Nerdist School Network. Welcome to the podcast of Two Worlds Trev Talk Edition. I'm Trevor Reese, and joined with me for this, I believe it's the fourth. I forgot to look back up uh, how many of these I've done, but for this edition, I'm joined by Stephen Peros, writer extraordinaire who has a new comic book coming out, Stoker and Wells. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, why don't you tell us a little bit... um, Let's go with your background. Let's let's kind of get to know you before we get to know the project. Well, I'm from New York, product of a working class Long Island, public school education, went to NYU, majored in film, was always scribbling at night, and then uh, uh, we worked for a theater producer and TV producer in New York, and got some action on one of my scripts, said, oh my gosh, right out of school, it's a dream come true, and they I came out here, and, and then it, they had all the financing and a big uh, casting director and a big talent and then it turned the whole thing fell through and so that movie um wound up getting made uh it's a film that wouldn't die it became the catch me out but that journey was uh 12 years from that point of of, of crushing disappointment uh to uh one one you know producer uh, optioned it and I had a stroke. Another one uh, went out of business, so merged with another company. They wouldn't give it back to me. But everyone always asked about it, asked about it, asked about it. So I said, well, let me turn it into some other property. Maybe that will reinvigorate it. And so I turned a screenplay into a stage play because I knew mm. a- an actress producer who uh, had access to funds to produce it. And sure enough, that's what happened. And the play was mounted. It was a very successful here. Reinvigorated interest in the, uh, the film property. And Lionsgate made it. Peter Bogdanovich directed it. Uh, Kirsten Dunst, Eddie Izzard, Carrie Elways, Edward Herman, incredible cast, Joanna Lumley, Jennifer Tilly, all starred in it. And um, so in a strange way, and then, well, since then I've been involved, I've been involved in a number of features, I've directed, I've sold pilots to NBC Universal, MTV. But in a strange way, I'm doing this process I did with Catch Meow, again, with Stoker and Wells. (laughs) It is a screenplay that I wrote uh, that imagines what if a 20-something H.G. Uh, Wells met a 40-something Bram Stoker in 1894 London, and one of the two men went on, uh, against their will, a, a uh, 48-hour adventure in time, <laughs> and uh, with Tronda being the creative inspiration for both men's first great work, The Time Machine for H.G. Wells and Dracula for Bram Stoker, um, because both men were really nobodies before that point. Mm-hmm. They, aren't, they aren't the people we know today. Yeah. Um, and so people have, have really liked the script. I've gotten work off of the script as a sample. Um, but no one's pulled the trigger, very much like Catch Me Out. So people, everyone, everyone wants IP now. And even, <laughs> though, even though, yes, this is, you know, various uh, people who I've spoken to, if there's any way, can it? I, said, I thought Bram Stoker and H.G. Wells were IP enough. <laughs> but um, so I've known people in the comic book industry for years um, two fellows I've known since seventh grade. One of them is Billy Tucci, who created She, um, which is you know, sold four million copies, grossed twenty five million dollars. It's a, it's it is a cottage industry. He himself, he also just uh, a couple of years back did reinvigorated Sergeant Rock for DC, mm-hmm. and he did Harley Quinn, a, a, a big Batman Harley Quinn thing, just recently. Um, so Billy's on board. Uh, Barry Orkin uh, is, did all this beautiful art. Um, so I said, well. I, I, I would be thrilled if, if it exists as a graphic novel, um, uh, if that also becomes a journey from graphic novel to uh, 
motion picture trilogy to <laughs> to limited series. Um, so be it, you know, because that's the, you know that that would be a great journey as well. It, it happened with Cats Meow. I don't you know I don't look at it as some sort of strange impossibility. It's happened for me, so it's gonna you know I have no no doubt it will happen again. But it's been a really uh, great ride with this because I'm someone who knows what I know and I know what I don't know, and so it's been exciting to learn from uh, some great. Uh, experts in the comic book field, not only Billy's experience, uh, but he introduced me to a fellow named uh, J.C. Vaughn, who's vice president of publishing at uh, Gemstone, which puts out oh, the yeah. Overstreet Comic Book Guide. And, and Jeff's a writer himself. He and his partner, Mark Haynes, uh, wrote um, the comic books for Stargate and, and a couple of other major properties. So he came on board as the editor, and he's a manager of this whole project, and he got me an incredible colorist, Chris Summers, and and our our uh, our letterer Marshall Dillon, if you, that's actually his name. Um, um, so I feel he's going to arrest me when I see him someday. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it's just been a, a great, exciting journey. Plus, uh, the Cat's Meow, which was about Hearst and Chaplin and Marion Davies and a murder that may or may not have taken on board, uh, t- taken place on board William Randolph Hearst's yacht, was steeped in in research, but ultimately becomes historical fiction. Because you can do all the research you want, but once Marilyn, uh, once Marion Davies and Charlie Chaplin walk in a cabin on a yacht and close the door, it's fiction. Yeah. So, what was exciting to me about this was to steep as much as I could in who these guys were at the time. In fact, I, I jokingly say this is the absolutely true story of H.G. <laughs> Wells and Bram Stoker, give or take forty-eight hours. <laughs> because I really didn't want to even take—I didn't want to take liberties with anything that that already existed in their lives, because their lives were kind of fascinating where they were and, the, and ultimately where they went. I mean, Wells was just a real kind of 20-something screw-up. That's <laughs> really who, what he was. He was, he was. he was brilliant. He was scattered. Um, he, um, he'd been a sort of weakling little kid who'd, who'd had been laid up in bed for a long time after someone on the, on the rugby field thought, oh, I wonder what it'd be like to throw this little kid up in the air and see what happens. <laughs> and he came crashing down, broke his legs, and, you know, was laid up for almost... A year, but he became a little bit of a um, fearless after that, and uh, he was very smart. But didn't could, no one could pin him down. He substitute teaching. He would be a draperer. He all these all this stuff, and his family getting frustrated with him. And he was uh, he he just ended his. He just got divorced around this time, and said, "I don't know if you know this marriage thing is for me." Mm-hmm. And so he couldn't be more different from Bram Stoker, yeah, who is in his forties. He's about 15 years. He was managing the Lyceum Theater in London and from a long lineage of civil servants. So he hadn't broken out. He, inside, wanted to be this writer-creator, but he didn't know he was allowed to be. You know, uh, he was from Ireland, and he relocated to London to run uh, Henry Irving's theater, who was huge, huge impersonal. He became Sir Henry Irving. That's how big a deal he was. Um, but he was just running, you know, helping another man make, uh, make his dreams come true. And um, so I thought it would be really interesting if this 40-something uptight guy who, is, who doesn't want to admit he's an artist meets this a little bit more flamboyant, a little bit more fearless 20-something uh, who, is, um, who uh, has a little bit of fear of success and he's hiding from his true calling. And both men, in their own way, are hiding from their true calling. And so what if I put them on an adventure together where they, they rise to their, their true self? 
And so that what was so it's a, it is it's fun. It's a lark. It's it's scary. It's funny. It's got a lot of adventure. It uses all of their material as source material for my imagination, but it's also about something that resonates. Uh, whether it's 1894 or 5894, where they traveled to, or everywhere in between, the idea of stepping into and owning who you were put on Earth to be. Yeah. And so that's what I think, you know, that's the bigger theme uh, of the piece, hopefully ideally entertaining you um, as a graphic novel because of just the incredible artists involved. This is on Kickstarter. It's on Kickstarter Live now. It's Stoker and Wells. If you put the word Stoker, S-T-O-K-E-R, it'll come up. Don't put an H.G. Wells, a billion things will come up. <laughs> but Stoker or Stoker and Wells, it'll, it'll W-E-L-L-S is how he uh, spells his name. But, um, but it's not going to be a print-on-demand. It's going to be a high-quality book. Everybody is top drawer. Everybody is much more experienced than I am. So, <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad uh, yeah. situation to find yourself in Absolutely. for your first. Absolutely. To be surrounded by all these people who have extensive knowledge and, and gr- amazing credits. Yeah, they absolutely do. Was that what, um, was it working with you, um, the people you knew that drew you to um, being in graphic novels? Or um, was it just like. No, it was, it was the idea to, to that this project, um, just like um, uh, just like the Cat's Meow. I wasn't going to take no for an answer. Uh, this story had to out. You know, yeah. I'm a storyteller. I, I have two plays published, Samuel French. I have several TV pilots. I've made, I've written movies and I've written and directed movies. So I just want to tell stories in all mediums. Um, the first things I did when I was a little kid was write short stories. So the idea of how can I launch this in some other form that will bring attention to it to see if it has a multimedia life um, it seemed obvious. Uh, rather, I, I could have written a novel of it. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of screenwriters will do that with their scripts that are unsold, and and then it'll make it happen. Um, but I didn't want to do that. I felt the visual appeal of this was just you know really strong, and um, so I uh, and and I knew some people in that world, so I approached them, kept courting them, said, "Hey, hey, read the script, and and uh, why don't we all work on this? Why don't we all work on this?" And then everyone was very involved in various projects. Then it was just one moment where it went, bam, yes, let's do it. And so, um, and and the uh, I, interesting thing is I've known Billy Tucci, who created She. I've known Barry Orkin, who did the pencils and the and the art, who did uh, also did a book called Demon Gun. He did all the original inking for uh, the early um, uh, issues of She. We've known each other since seventh grade. We went to Peter J. Brennan Jr. High School in North Babylon, New York, <laughs> Uh, you know, we went to comic book conventions together. We uh, went to you know movies together, midnight movies. We watched as uh, beautiful old single screen movie theaters were closed down and turned into multiplexes and tried to protest. You know, uh, so you know we've we've eaten at diners at two a.m. So you know we've done all that stuff and and we've helped each other in group. Billy and I worked together. Billy and Barry. Barry and I, but never the three of us together on something. And Billy's contributing a, a Kickstarter exclusive variant cover oh, wow. that we're going to be uh, putting up as an update next week. Um, Barry's cover is extraordinary, and it's it, they, it basically just doing two different uh, styles, two different uh, concepts for the title. So a cover, so it's not Billy doing the same cover Barry did. He's got his own. Uh, we, we talked about a whole different uh, direction to go. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean that that's why it happened. I just wanted to create a new piece of IP that seemed seemed screaming obvious in my face <laughs> that it should be a graphic novel. 
Um, so what's your background in comic books? Because you mentioned like, so this is your first project uh-huh. working in the medium, but you mentioned that you were going to comic conventions as a kid. Yep. Were you like looking, were you, when you were starting this, were you looking at stuff? Were you going back to stuff you read as a kid? Like what, what was what was your reading habits during this process? Well, I, I have a confession. I always say that, that there are, you know, because I've gone to San Diego Comic Con since you could walk up to the door and buy a ticket. <laughs> Which you cannot do anymore. Oh because, yeah, unless you want to forget. You, you, can't, you can't even get it from a scalper because of the complexities of getting a badge. Um, I I always tell they say, "What do you do down there?" And the people who are outside of this whole arena, I said, "You could have four guys go down together and have four totally different experiences. Yeah, uh, one of you can be totally into gaming, uh, another one totally into anime, another one totally into uh, comics, another one totally into collectibles." Yeah. And I was always the guy going to, you know, for anyone in New York uh, listening to this creation convention in Manhattan at, uh, at the uh, ever-changing name of the hotel that was right above Penn Station. It was the, the, the Penn, uh, Statler, then the, the Penn, I don't know what it was called. But they always had, so me and my buddies would go in in junior high on the Long Island Railroad. And I was the guy who wasn't the comic, I, w- I didn't do comic books. I was there for the movie stuff. Okay. So I was there for all the sci-fi horror stuff. And I remember when... Uh, when I was in junior high, and there's this, you know, hippieish look, two hippieish looking guys there, and one is a director, and one is a makeup guy, and they're going to introduce some movie uh, called The Howling, and it was Joe Dante and um, uh, the great makeup guy whose name's escaping me, but um, so uh, not Rick Baker, his protege. So, uh, so I was, so I was always looking over my friend's shoulder at at, at X Men and everything that they were reading, but it wasn't my thing. Um, I. Uh, you know, so I I wasn't necessarily a big comic book guy. I'd read theirs, but I didn't. I don't have a huge. I have some, uh, but I've never been a huge comic, comic book guy. So this actually has much more of a spirit of um, of uh, that kind of golden age seventies, you know, uh, comics. I, I hope I didn't just uh, say something to offend. Is is that golden age or seventies? Well, seventies are a weird time where it's yeah. like. Seventies into the eighties, actually. 80s, yeah, that's 80s is what we're talking about. That's, yeah, so that's like 80s. Silver Age. It's nebulously like the yeah. Bronze Age right, is right. what like the eighties is called. Yeah. So yeah, really, it was eighties was the stuff that I, I wasn't going to conventions or collecting anything in the seventies. I was too young then. But uh, yeah, the eighties. I lived through that decade that every millennial wishes they lived through <laughs> for some reason. Uh, looking back on it, it was definitely a fun decade <laughs> to have because I got to straddle two cool decades as a you know. As a youth, yeah, you know, so I got to, you know, be uh, uh, someone who was still a kid, very you know, young kid, seventies, and then get into the eighties, into high school and, and, and junior high, high school, college, that kind of thing. So it was a, it was a great, uh, it's a great period uh, for everything pop culture. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we're still mining the eighties yeah. and nineties, and yeah, look at Stranger. I mean, Stranger Things. Uh, it, it feels like. A movie f- that could have been made in the eighties. Yeah, for sure, totally. Uh, not just the book itself, but the film, the style of the film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's exciting because it's a lot of you know they say that your what you if you're an artist what you experienced and and uh, absorbed at and gravitated towards at fourteen is something that stays with you. For some reason hmm. there's that eight. There's a certain key moment. These, these are these. Are, I'm talking about not people who suddenly decided to be an artist or, or felt it when they were 30. I mean, people who have been it since a little kid. Yeah. Uh, an escapable, an inescapable gene in them. But but if you look back and go, oh, yeah, I see the 14-year-old, the influence of what I watched. I'm not yeah. saying acting like a 14-year-old yeah, or yeah. seeing kids' movies. I'm saying 
you know, I saw tons of adult movies when I was 14. Yeah. You know, and, and I see how it, it, it continues to influence and come out from some sort of DNA. Yeah, no, I've 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 heard that mm-hmm. idea before. It was like mm-hmm. the, 14 years old because yeah. it's like it's right before you hit high school. Mm-hmm. So it's like because high school is such an influential thing, just the mm-hmm. entirety of it that it can completely change your outlook. Absolutely. And so yeah, that's, that's yeah, it feels like 14 would be just right before mm-hmm. you're starting to have your adult taste. You're mm-hmm. not having like kid taste, but you're also having been like in that huge influence vacuum that is high school so <laughs> absolutely or then after like I, there's a there's a period of a few years right around 14 where i, I think i saw every movie that ever came out in the theater wow. i mean i just went to everything well yeah and it's also yeah. like yeah you're just 14 went, so yeah. you have the disposable yeah. income yeah, a little yeah. bit more yeah it's all you're spending your money on I mean, yeah there's no rent <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, I mean i'm lucky i hope i'm not the only person who can say that but um so yeah, I mean totally. I and and then I realized some someone will say something about a movie. Why you didn't see that? And I realized I was in college, mm. and when I was in college going to NYU film school, I was so immersed in making movies and then studying and learning about some many. I was seeing for the first time uh, the great movies I'd never seen. Yeah. So seeing the new studio popcorn movie, while one year earlier I would definitely have seen it. Yeah. There's tons of movies I missed that I then revisited you know years later i was like i just that was just a i was single-minded then you know i was just learning about the past i was doing my own work yeah meeting new people so no i didn't go every friday as i was doing before and saturday and every (laughs) other day and and sometimes going to the mall and and seeing three movies when no one was looking so uh, (laughs) but uh no it was a great uh great uh uh, childhood and uh, and definitely see the path from there to hear, and again, it's so incredible to work with with people that I've come up with, grown up with. Watched, they've watched my career and supported me. Mm-hmm. I've watched theirs and supported them. And then we have this whole really lovely hometown contingent. Yeah, uh, thanks to the miracle of Facebook, who are helping and supporting and pledging, and it's just really, really moving, and uh, it kind of leaves you speechless. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you uh, you and your team have known each other since seventh grade, that's around 14, so... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there it is. That's right. Uh, well, then what were your... Um, if it, you really didn't um, gravitate towards comic, what were your first experience with uh, uh, Bram Stoker and H.G. Uh, Wells? Well, certainly reading them um, and the movies. Uh, you know, Bram Stoker is... is, is um, the, the evolution of Dracula into the pop culture is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, I hadn't read the book until I sat down to do this. So I read, uh, I reread Time Machine because I read it as a kid. Uh, and um, one is a slim volume, one is a thick volume. Um, but what's fascinating is that um, it was popular in its time. He was not very prolific. The two most, they're very opposite men in that respect. H.G. Wells, very, once he started writing, Boom, boom, boom. I mean, it just was, he was yeah. just knocking these books out um, relative, relative to Stoker, who was much – he was the turtle, you know. He yeah. was much slower and meticulous and the rewriting and, and, and so forth. But Dracula, while it was published in a couple of languages, few languages, it did not make him enough to leave his day job. Wow. And so um, – he, he had been he continued to work a total of uh he worked 23 years as a theater manager for the Lyceum Theater in London i mean he was an important guy in that position yeah but dracula was out and published and it wasn't enough to take care of him and his wife and children um 
uh, during that period. In fact, he started to downsize towards the end of his life uh, in terms of income. And it wasn't until... Uh, oh, so so then what happened was, then in uh, 1922, uh, the great F.W. Murnau, great German expressionist uh, filmmaker, makes Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he uh, puts on the screen, freely adapted from Dracula. <laughs> he didn't call anybody and, and or mail a letter to suggest he get the rights. And Mrs. Stoker... Um, was going to have none of this. And so she got a legal, she got the legal system working and it worked in her favor. And uh, Nosferatu, the classic uh, that is on, you know, list of 100 greatest horror movies of all time, was pulled from circulation and part of the terms were every print and negative had to be destroyed. Fortunately, a couple of wise people kept prints in, in, in a cellar so that as the decades went on, it never really went away, and now you know it. It still exists. But I was bringing that up because in, in the uh, higher, uh, and when you watch it, they've he's changed the names, but it's the same story. It's yeah. the story of Dracula. Um, but in the book, there aren't. He does not sleep in a coffin. He sleeps in boxes of earth. It does not say or nor demonstrate that a vampire will be destroyed by the rays of the sun. It, it basically the most it says is he doesn't like. He just doesn't like to be in yeah. the sunlight and keeps out of the sunlight. Um, but there's no deathly fear of it. It wasn't. It was Nosferatu that first created the idea that vampires perish from sunlight, which then became part of lore. And it was the stage play of Dracula, the Broadway stage play of Dracula, in the late twenties, that which which then became adapted for um, the Lugosi Universal Dracula mm-hmm. in thirty one. That's where they started having Dracula sleep in a coffin because it just looked cool. <laughs> and so he sleeps in a coffin, um, and then that play and the movie is why Dracula became an international phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and so, so from there, all sorts of lore. That's why I, I always love it when 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 f- when fans argue about vampire rules <laughs> or werewolf rules or zombie rules. You know why that movie's not good? Because, you know, we all know that blah, 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 blah. Like, well, you know, these are just, you know, you're just, first of all, it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just making this up as we go along. So it was really fascinating to see, you know, how the movies are, why, you know, it's basically why, I, why I'm wearing a Christopher Lee Taste the Blood of Dracula shirt <laughs> right now. Um, it, 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 uh, it's, it's the movies that became the global... Well, that's language. Same with like Superman, Mm -hmm. um, Daily Planet, uh, Perry White, Kryptonite, all came from the radio show. Mm -hmm. And so it's, and and like now you see it with like the Marvel movies and the comic books, it's just the movies way more uh, influence the pop culture view of these characters more so than source material, especially with so much time in between. Like, when did uh, Dracula first come out? Uh, 1890, uh, well, my story's 94, I think it was 97, if, I, if I'm correct. Yeah. So then all this, all the movie stuff happens about like 20, 30 years after right, that. Right, so. Yeah, the Broadway play would have been just about 30 years later. He was, he had passed away. Bram Stoker was, but his, his uh, wife was, was, she was still around, I think, even when the play, when the Broadway play mm. and the movie, because then they did the rights, the right <laughs> way. They actually got the rights. Oh, in fact, I think it was, she was approached by the playwright who said, I would like to do this. And, and she's all, she's very careful and protective of her husband's 
a legacy. Uh, one of the fun things we did at our launch party at, just across the street at Samuel French was we had Florence Balcom, Mrs. <laughs> Bram Stoker, uh, come um, in, in full authentic Victorian garb. She w- wandered about the party. She had a handler with her, the, the great David Delval. And, um, and eventually, you know, we were, kept our fingers crossed that she would give us her endorsement, and, and in the end, she did. So <laughs> she approves. Uh, she thinks her husband would approve. And given that she is in book two of this three-book, three-graphic novel trilogy, um, because the first book takes place largely, a- after the opening, it takes place largely in 5894. Um, uh, but in the second book, they return. Okay. And so it takes place largely. It's, it's still a fantastical, supernatural, horror, monster-filled uh, tale, but but again, uh, all, all in the line of what <laughs> influenced these men in their work. Yeah. Um, but because it's back home in London, uh, Mrs. Stoker will their personal lives will be a part of the story. Uh, so she, so she gave me her endorsement that she will actually approve <laughs> the use of her in book two, well, which good. is uh, Stoker and this is called Stoker. The first one, Stoker and Wells, Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a real hermetic order, a secret order that um, studied. Um, um, uh, the paranormal, the black arts, all sorts of things. It wasn't necessarily devil worshippers or, or witchcraft, but they would study it. Yeah, you know, and um, and so that that the Order of the Golden Dawn is a real place. The two men circumstances explained in the book go to it, and and uh, uh, chaos ensues. <laughs> um, so when they come back, it's called it's Stoker and Wells' The Ashes of Revenge, mm. and um, because of events that occurred, someone wants to get even. All right. um, back in London. Uh, so, uh, but it was fun to do a mashup of Time Machine and Dracula. You would think, how can you do it? But really, like any writing, any storytelling, including all the shelves of of comics here, it's you let your characters lead. Yeah, and it made it wound up, and the circumstance that you put them in, you just follow logic, and um, it actually wasn't difficult, especially when I read both books. And did it on PDF and made marks all over it uh, on on my iPad. And I said, "Oh wow, this is actually this is this is too good to be true." There's actually characters that they, I, they're actually a character in Time Machine and Dracula, who who I can make as a fusion single character. Um, the female lead, very much so in both books. Uh, their names even sound alike. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually very fun to do this strange. You know, I mean, it, it, Dracula has all these, you know, f- followers who do what he says and wants and provide, you know, these vampires that provide food food, food and nourishment and victims for him. And I thought, well, that would be the Morlocks in the time machine. Yeah. And so it was actually pretty fun and organic to fuse the two stories. And since a vampire is immortal... Any vampire roaming the streets in 1894 who has not perished will still be here in 5894. Yeah, and so what's he like then? Um, so it, it was it's, it was a lot of fun, and that spirit will carry over into book two because while this is Time Machine and Dracula, you know the other one, the the next one will have elements of uh, the Invisible Man, all sorts of, and inc- and continue the the Time Machine Dracula elements as well. So it's uh, a fun piece. Well, it's fun because also you can kind of further uh, demonstrate these men's characters by putting them into these similar situations and then see where Bram Stoker took that idea and where H.G. Wells took that idea of them witnessing the same thing. Yeah, they can't just be um, 
anybody in this situation. Yeah. I got to take advantage of Bram Stoker and H.G. Wells. You know what's really funny is uh, Nicholas Meyer, who um, wrote and directed um, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and basically the good Star Treks. Uh, the <laughs> Star Trek II, Star Trek IV. Uh, uh, um, uh, he, um, no, the last one, I think, Wilma Christopher Plummer is the bad guy. Um, he also wrote and directed Time After Time about H.G. Wells chasing the Jack the Ripper back in time. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a time machine that Wells himself made and kept in his basement. So <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I went from outline to, on the screenplay to, to then start writing the screenplay, that's when you start to realize, suddenly you start to write dialogue and you outline all you want and you say, oh, I wonder. Wait a minute, I hadn't considered what is, so how do people address H.G. Wells? Do they call him H, H.G., Herbert, <laughs> Kirby? What do they call him? I said, well, you know what, let me put on time after time. Let me see how he licked this problem. So his, that movie also takes place just before Time Machine. And then I'm watching this after researching and reading Wells' own autobiography. I'm like, he's living in a, lo- in a lovely home, well-appointed home, servants, I, the gentlemen were all over smoking cigars in mm-hmm. port, and, and he's built a time machine in the basement. I'm like, this just, he could never have done any of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're saying he makes money as a writer about essays on free love. You know, an essay on free love will barely get you on the L.A. Metro red line. I mean, <laughs> it's not going to make it. But so I said, oh, I'm sure. And they've since dissolved. Like last year, they dissolved the IMDb message boards. I guess too many people writing nasty things. <laughs> in fact, I know that's why they did it. Um, so I said, well, let me see. I'm sure there are going to be tons of, of fans who've written and going, this was not H.G. Wells, you know. Da, da, da. Not one. Not one. Ca- tons of comments. This is not how Jack the Ripper was. Of course, the person that we don't actually know anything <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure yeah. about. <laughs> people were sure that there were problems with that. And I thought that was so interesting. Nicholas Meyer is totally educated. Huge historian. Somehow he knew back in 80-whatever when that movie, or 79, I think, when that movie was made, that he could take those liberties and it wouldn't matter to people. And, uh, um, but the same token, I, I really get inspired and, and my imagination sparks by having a, a, a toolkit to work from. So I said, let me know. I want to I make my story be the, actually who Wells was in 1894. He was, you know, a screw-up who, who didn't, didn't have money in his pocket you know, was making girls pay for his dates, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, that, that's who he was. He was a hound dog, and, uh, and I just thought that's the fun guy. No, that guy couldn't afford to build a time machine in the basement, so they don't leave in, yeah. in H.G. Wells' time machine in my story. And that's where the Order of the Golden Dawn comes in, that, that order of, of very, very wealthy, well-to-do people and, and, and uh, quite a number of madmen there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fun, t- it's a weird... Time, like it seems like it's like that, and like the late 1700s with like the Revolutionary War, there's like really eccentric, very um, good storytelling, like actual people. Mm-hmm. Like you have like Ben Franklin, he can just be fit into anything, just like the kind of all these, like a lot of like jack of trades and like intellectual clubs and like all the secrecy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. There's really great times to to pull from in that in, in that era. Yeah, I mean, you have these people who valued education. And mm-hmm. They valued it in themselves. They valued being well-rounded, um, and and they had a hunger, you know, for um, they had a hunger for um, knowledge and experience. Uh, they didn't get to experience 
things by turning on the TV and seeing it, and then seeing it in HD, and then mm. seeing it in 52, 63, and 94 inch screens. So why do I even need to go? Yeah. Um, so anything, you know, they, they had to get out of their dens or studies, meet other people, and learn other things, and travel other places if they wanted to have a life. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a, it is a different time. And so if you were a person of, uh, high intelligence, you probably acted differently uh, based on the parameters of your environment than you would maybe today. There are probably tons of super intelligent people who never leave their home. <laughs> it's, just, it's just all there and they're just absorbed in, in uh, how, you know, m- media and streaming and internet and it's just, just you know, is not only uh, teaching them but also making them not want to go out into yeah. the world <laughs> because of of the things out there that might frustrate them, that they're in fear of. Mm-hmm. Um, but these people, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they didn't know they'd be afraid of anything unless they suddenly were standing in front of a rhinoceros and said, whoa, this is a little tricky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get to watch this on PBS. To yeah. Know, <laughs> you know? And so um, let's talk a little bit about um, your theater experience mm-hmm. since we met at Sam French. Um, so you did Cat's Meow, um, and that was something you started off in another medium mm-hmm. um, and then uh, decided to bring to the stage. Was the same true for your uh, other play, uh, Carla Boy? Well, what happened there is two very different roles. I'll back up a little and, and lead into an answer. I uh, The very first stuff I ever wrote were because I didn't know how that people wrote plays or screenplays were short stories. And then the next thing I did uh, was I started to write little two-character plays. So the first things I did were plays. And then in my backyard, even though I loved movies, um, uh, when I was in elementary school, I drafted my my poor unsuspecting uh, best friends, uh, Richie Costa and Tommy Chu, and then we did... Uh, I did a dub- double feature plays uh, <laughs> three different summers, little abbreviated versions of uh, House on Haunted Hill and Horror Hotel was one summer, and the other, you know, the first one was, um, my very first play produced by me um, <laughs> was The Murder of Mr. Hyde, which answered the never-asked question, whatever happened to Mr. Hyde's, uh, Dr. Jekyll's butler, you know, <laughs> we're all wondering, you know, uh, did he get revenge for the death of his master? Uh, I forget how it turned out. For some reason, I was sophisticated enough to give, not give myself the lead. I don't even know. I because I, I so wanted to play Mr. Hyde, even but I didn't write a very big part because he, he's, he's dead. Yeah. And so I think I'm this, the ghost of Mr. Hyde telling my butler how to get revenge on the man who <laughs> killed me. And it was a huge success, of course, because <laughs> we made a dollar fifty-five in ticket sales and a dollar sixty-five. In concessions. Wow. So that's, that's where I learned. That's where the real money is. <laughs> so uh, the next summer I went from a single to a double feature. And then the next summer another double feature of Return of Frankenstein and something else. I don't know what it was. Um, so plays are what I want to do. I, I gravitated away from uh, ripping off movies that already existed. And um, I always was a playwright. Now, I, then I got very much into wanting to make film. But there was always part of me that was a playwright, and uh, and I wrote a play in high school. You know, I think after my first girlfriend broke up with me <laughs> after the uh, after four months, you know, just, you know, you're all devastated, and uh, and I have to write a play, yeah. you know, about all my angst, 
Oh, my 14-year-old <laughs> yeah, yeah, angst. Yeah. There you go. I don't know. Maybe when I was in 14, maybe I was 16. I don't know. But anyway, so, you know, I broke it, whatever. I literally still have the copy of it, and I put a post-it on it that if this is discovered in the event of my death, please forgive me. I was very young. Because <laughs> I don't want anyone to read it and think that, that, that I can't write better than this. But um, so I... Um, so I always loved theater. I got obviously involved in film for many, many years, but always was, was scribbling. Carla Boy was always a work in progress, and Carla Boy actually came first as a produced play. It was, it was published second by Samuel French, but I came out here because of, of – I came out to L.A. from New York uh, when there was when my screenplay, The Cat's Meow, was first option. It was called Everybody Charleston at the time. And then I got exposed to what it's like to be in the – be trying to get projects going in the field. And I was a writing machine. I write the next spec script, the next spec script, lots of meetings, almost options, not happen, not happen. And I was like, this, this can't be what it is. I mean, it's a screenplay is not where it's not the goal. Yeah. The movie's the goal. I said, I, I just got to tell a story to an audience. I can't do this anymore. So I had this play, Carla Boy, um, which all take place in one set, very much a memory play, the way uh, something like Amadeus or or um, M. Butterfly is structured where you have this charismatic lead character who then twirls you into flashbacks, and he's on stage the whole time. So it's a similar kind of story. all takes place in one long night. Um, and so I raised the money all myself, um, um, and I put it on a theater, the now defunct uh, Actor Circle Theater on Santa Monica Boulevard, uh, uh, across the street from, anyway, in West <laughs> Hollywood. Um, so that was done. And then I was always trying to peddle Cats Meow as a screenplay. Um, and then it, like I said, it wound up happening. I, I, I went to see somebody doing theater and I said, would you produce Kim Bieber? And, uh, and she said, yes. So I'd always loved theater. I just love telling stories to audiences. I love the live feeling of theater that you're there. That, and also the constantly changing, it's not fixed yeah. like film is. Um, the the performance may be different a, a certain night. Uh, an actor may be more on or going to a place they never went before. Uh, an audience may be good or bad. Uh, an audience may fuel the performance um, or may challenge the performance. Uh, <laughs> so it's always been exciting. It's just been something different. Even Even within my screenwriting, I like to write in different genres. So I'm always trying to mix it up. I love all kinds of movies. So I'm always trying to, to, to uh, mix it up. It's hard to go back to theater now. Everything is all about uh, the next film or TV property uh, or project of mine. And so I did do a staged reading about a year ago, a year and a half ago, at uh, Sam French of a new play, uh, my first contemporary play, because the other two are period pieces. Cats Meow set in the 20s, and Carla Boy set, well, set in the in the present, but in flashback in the 50s. Um, so I've just always loved theater. Uh, and then I, when Cat's Meow came out, and of course the erroneous credit on the film, which is screenplay based on the play by Stephen Perros, you know, it was always a screenplay first, but the Writers Guild rules at the time said wherever it was first publicly presented, it had to go in that order. And so since it was first presented as a play, uh, so I, I, wanted, I, I would get emails. Hey, are the rights to the play rights? Like, why am I being my own? I said, like, maybe I'll just put out feelers to Sam French and dramatist and a couple of different play services to see if someone wants to publish. And Sam French said yes, and then they said yes to my. I said, well, there's this other play that won 
the Dramalogue Critics Award for Outstanding Writing. Do you want that one too? And they said, sure. So they published both of my plays. And the store is walking distance from where I live. And so they've been really <laughs> great. Uh, all the folks over there, Joyce and, uh, and, and Brittany, have been really fantastic to me. And um, um, we're kind enough to provide the uh, space and, and advertising and all the coffee we wanted uh, <laughs> for our... Um, for our uh, little shindig, we had to launch the Kickstarter, which wound up being very effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it seemed like you guys had a great success at yeah. that event. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and it kind of, it, it kind of, uh, instead of just launching a Kickstarter by hitting a button and then starting to tell people, yeah, people are knowing about it before it launches, mm-hmm. and then they're knowing about it there, and then you have some people who within, and then so and then within twenty four hours, you know, you know, we, we were in less than twenty four within. Eight hours of launching, we were at a thousand bucks already, oh. and so it's good for then when people start to look at the page. There's already money that already pledged. Yeah, so it was a good strategy that came from uh, J.C. Vaughn, our editor, who'd been involved with a few other comic book Kickstarter launches, and then I've just been averse, immersing myself in the research on how it's done uh, because I, I was part of a Kickstarter for a different kind of project, a, a sizzle reel for a TV show, mm. but I was I was part of being on the front line of trying to get people to pledge. Uh, so I know you do you basically for 30 days you can't let up. You kind yeah. of have to find that balance between being uh nudging but not being annoying, being being gra- uh, grateful um uh um and as self-effacing as you can be um because you are asking people to pledge money but what you you do try to make the reward uh, rewards feel like it's their money's worth. Yeah. So if you have someone who says, okay, well, I'll pledge, it's not like I'm going to give these guys $10. If if it goes, you'll get a, a digital download, you know, and, and your name will be in the book. And for 25, a pledge of 25, well, that's basically, I, I look at it as a pre-order. Yeah. You'll, you'll get shipping and handling and the, the 64-page full-color book mailed to your home. You'll also get a digital download. And you also get a thank you. So in a way, you're not just handing me like money on a street corner. Uh, you're actually getting something for it. So essentially, it's the equivalent of pre-ordering, and hopefully we fund, and you'll get that. Yeah. If we don't fund, you never... Because when you pledge on Kickstarter, for anyone who doesn't know, it doesn't get taken out of your account until the 30 days are over, and only if we reach our goal. So part of um, why I'm so happy that you asked me to be here is just to be able to keep spreading the word yeah. uh, beyond the friends and family and colleagues level. Uh, to hopefully a whole new bunch of new people. Because I do think, uh, I, I'm very thrilled about the book. I love the script. I wrote the script. I worked hard on it. And not only the entertainment value, but for me, I really do believe there is a great value to um, awakening children of all ages to these two men. They are already cool guys for what they accomplished, but if yeah. I can make them even cooler and take who they were... Um, and make a uh, 11 or 12 year old boy actually go and grab the time machine. Um, then that's a huge, you know, yeah. a, a huge accomplishment, and I think a, wor- a worthy and worthwhile one. And Stoker, who is much less known um, personally, I, you know, I think all their life details are fascinating, and I think it'll make people. A lot of people are huge vampire fans, Dracula fans, and probably have never looked at the book. Yeah. And it's fascinating to know where it all started. You know, one of the things that we say, oh, Bram Stoker, Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, that's the one that got it right. It, it, you know, that's said by a bunch of people who've n- not read the book. <laughs> this whole notion of, of that the, the primary focus of the novel Dracula is Dracula's search for his long-lost love does not exist yeah. in the book. 
So that, that is the primary motivation. And, uh, and now maybe some of the, the visual details and the no, notion of Dracula can change shape to some extent. And, and also this notion that Dracula can look old and then after being fed look young, which they did in that version. Uh, but shy of that, you know, it's no more Bram Stoker's Dracula than, than quote-unquote, Bram Stoker's Dracula than Lugosi's is. It takes liberties, but it keeps certain things. Um, there aren't, you know, I think some of the ones that have been most faithful, there's a wonderful uh, BBC two-part miniseries that's available online and, and streaming and stuff uh, starring Louis Jardin from the 70s. And I think that one really... Um, was closest to it. I'll tell you what's closest to it, and you can all listen to it for free right now, is find Orson Welles's uh, Mercury Theater on the Air, because that's what he did, all these literary adaptations. And he just wrote them himself, sitting, you know, while he was being shuttled from doing some play downtown and taking off his old age makeup in Heartbreak House. You know, he was sitting there scribbling what would be, you know, going on the air in Mercury Theater all when he was, you know, 23 and 24 years old. Jesus. And, uh, but what he did wisely was he, he knew how to pull stuff right from the books. Yeah. And if you listen to his hour-long Dracula, it's incredibly faithful. And, and every speech and every li- most lines and speeches, he, f- he got right out of the book. And uh, it's, you know, I really think it's one of the best primers to reading it because you'll get a sense of, of what took place, mm-hmm. uh, what, what takes place narratively. Um, a narratively in it, and his voice is great as Dracula. Oh yeah, yeah I, so, I can only imagine yeah, what Orson Welles yeah. would sound like. Yeah, and and uh, you know a lot of people like to listen to his uh, War of the Worlds on Halloween, but uh, the Dracula is a pretty close second. <laughs> and, All and, right, and if you have two hours to spare, listen to them both for goodness' <laughs> sakes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm I just really uh, proud of it. The team's great. Um, the story can be enjoyed as pure entertainment or as 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 uh, historical fiction, um, as a vampire story, as a time travel story, um, uh, as a as a story of you know triumphing into yourself um, and 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 uh, uh, knocking down the limitations you've placed on yourself and 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 like true buddy films or buddy stories, they're two very different guys, yeah, different mos. And they help each other fill in gaps and um, grudging, grow to grudging respect while, of course, bickering and harassing each other. <laughs> um, yeah, as you can tell, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about it. Yeah, well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, let's run through all the info we need. First, uh, your personal uh, mm-hmm. social media. Where can we find you at? Uh, I am on Facebook, Stephen Peros. I think I'm, I'm maybe only one of two. Um, uh, Stephen, uh, uh, my my Twitter is Stephen G. Peros. Uh, it's S-T-E-V-E-N-G, middle initial G for George, my father's name. Peros, P-E-R-O-S. Uh, the book is called Stoker and Wells, the word and. So if you want to hashtag it, it's all one word, hashtag Stoker and Wells. Um, and if you search just the word Stoker, S-T-O-K-E-R in Kickstarter, we will come up. Of course, if you if you search Stoker and Wells, it'll also come up. Mm-hmm. Or, and since I launched it, uh, you can search my name. It's the only thing I, I have um, launched. I mean, I've, I've, fund, I've, I've invested in a bunch or contributed to a bunch. So that's out there. Uh, I have a website, stephenperos.com. I can always be reached there. Um, there's a contact button, uh, info at stephenperos.com. I can be reached on Facebook. Um, you can message me. And uh, um, But you know what? I'd love for, for anyone listening to... Uh, Take a look, explore. There are six pages of gorgeous art 
pen and ink by Barry Orkin. And what we've done is we've have six pa- a six-page sequence that I picked from the middle of the story. And we, we have the six pages in different phases. So instead of having all, three, all six pages uh, penciled, inked, colored, we have three that are fully done. But two are just inked, and one is just penciled so that we can invite people into the process. And you can nice. see what it looks like. Um, and uh, the coloring's by uh, the, the pencil ink by Barry Orkin, the coloring by Chris Summers, as I mentioned, and um, l- the uh, letters by uh, by Marshall Dillon. So you'll, even if you're on the fence about, you know, I don't know, I don't have any money, I really can't contribute, I ju- you know, you can look at the link for free and take a look, see who's involved, but look at that art. I'm just so proud of it and impressed with Barry's hard work uh, and all of our hard work kind of guiding him. And, you know, in a way, I was the, the director of this. I'm working with my artist, and um, and Barry was really great. And uh, I mean, his first shot, all of it was terrific. I, I gave some notes, but um, but I'd love for you to see it and and take a look at the Kickstarter. Just going to Kickstarter does not commit you. Don't worry, folks. Just go look. Um, you can contribute as little as five dollars. Um, like I said, ten dollars gets you um, five dollars gets you a thank you. Ten gets you a free digital download when we're done, which we estimate to be about six months. Um, but there's nothing foreseen in our way. That is not a rough estimate. We have calendared this out. We have budgeted this out. There's nothing that's going to, because I know some people might have been burned on some Kickstarter projects. Mm. No one's going to get burned here. It will get done, and I made sure that I have professionals involved. All the vendors have been contacted. Prices have been quoted, timetables. So this is going to get done. It will be in your hands, um, and I'm just excited for the opportunity to share it with you and share it with all your listeners here on the podcast. Awesome. And then what's the, the last date? Do you know the last day for contributing? November 22nd. Okay. No, no, November 21st. November 21st. So the sooner the better because, and I say the sooner the better because if you are considering it, please do it sooner than later because it helps. The more we raise sooner, the sooner Kickstarter will start putting it out to more people yeah, and, 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 and making it pop up more uh, higher up in searches, maybe making it one of the quote-unquote projects we love, which is one of their things that they do. Um, so uh, please go there, take a look. The art's beautiful, um, and you'll have a good time just exploring the page, and hopefully it will compel you to, uh, at the very least, want the book. And if you want the book, just basically consider it a pre-order, and, uh, and it will be yours sooner than later. Awesome, and then we'll have all the um, all your uh, social media stuff and all the uh, ways you can get in, uh, get onto the Kickstarter in the links and descriptions. So, Fantastic. yeah, um, Stephen, thank you so much for talking with thanks. us. Thanks for having me, Trevor. This yeah. has been a, a lot of fun, and I r- appreciate you uh, seeking me out and uh, and wanting to help spread the word. It means a lot. All right. Well, again, the project is uh, Stoker and Wells about Bram Stoker and H.G. Wells just before they broke big and the story that may or may not have influenced them to write their big stories. Uh, This is the podcast of Two Worlds. Thanks for joining us. The Nerdist School Network. For class and show information, visit NerdistSchool.com.